This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. I pray every single day that I don't get sick. I've seen some of my colleagues get sick. I've lost very important loved ones to this, and you cannot even cope because I have to go to work. Because if I don't go, who else is going to go? Even in the best of times, medicine can be a very stressful job. And a global pandemic is certainly not the best of times. Hospitals are under-resourced and understaffed. Doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers are putting themselves at great personal risk to care for their COVID-positive patients. Everywhere you look, these frontline medical providers are being praised as heroes. Some people are leaning out of their windows every night to bang on pots and pans and cheer for them. But is that enough? This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, a bioethicist, and health policy expert. I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. In this episode, who cares for the caregivers? What do we owe as a society to the people putting their lives on the line in the fight against COVID-19? Zeke, you're a physician and I'm not, but we've both worked in hospitals. You know, I started a program in medical humanities at Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, and I've been thinking a lot about that decade. I arrived in the late 1980s. It was a really tough time. There was a surging crack epidemic that was bringing young men with gunshot wounds to the hospital every day. A a surgeon had actually been killed in the OR just before I got there by an irate former patient. And there was the HIV epidemic, which was just starting, and really presented unknown risks to people. So there were all these dedicated people there, really some of the most amazing people I've ever met. They didn't have a lot of support. They supported each other. And their emotional problems, working in a tough environment under extreme circumstances, really, we didn't pay a lot of attention to the mental health angle of what healthcare workers do all the time. Frankly, we didn't pay a lot of attention in many cases to the mental health problems of the patients themselves. I I would totally agree with you. When you think 30, 35 years ago, the medical system looked down on mental health and looked, you know, had it isolated over there at those mental health hospitals, which were very far away. I remember that when I started out working at a cancer institute, we had scores of oncologists caring for thousands of patients, and we had one psychiatrist on staff, and that was it. We weren't even treating the patient's mental health condition well, and we were totally ignoring that there might be psychological pressures and depression among the oncologists caring for these patients. So I think biomedical ethics and medicine in general just hasn't paid much attention to the mental health of providers until very, very recently. We did focus in the first episode on allocation of scarce resources. I think this is related. Having 
clear guidelines for who gets the ventilator, for example, can help reduce the the emotional burden of this kind of life and death decision-making on doctors and nurses. But even if we can get that process right, when you're operating in an environment where you don't know where the virus is and you don't even know how best to treat it, that creates exceptional uncertainty and fear among people who are working in hospitals. Absolutely. And one of the things I've learned in my time as a cancer doctor is there's nothing more debilitating, nothing more anxiety provoking than uncertainty about the future. And when that uncertainty is mixed with personal risk, you really have an explosive and very potentially debilitating and emotionally draining condition. So we're going to start today's episode by hearing from three people who are on the front lines of the crisis, two nurses and a physician assistant all of whom are working at hospitals in one of the hotspots of the coronavirus pandemic, New York City. Everything that we're seeing now, nothing prepares you for this type of nursing. Nothing prepares you for the patients that I've been seeing. I have never seen anything like it. The only thing I can equate it to is it looks like a battlefield without blood, a war zone with people on stretchers in varying degrees of distress. I'm just like kind of in like this state of mind where it's like, this is not reality. This is just all too surreal and it's it's very scary. With space and personnel extremely limited, entire floors and even entire hospitals have been converted to serve only COVID positive patients. Literally, the hospital is full at this time. We really honestly have no beds. Some of the nurses down there now are nurses who have been asked to move from their regular units down to the ER to help out so that we could have more hands because there are so many more patients than there are the number of staff that we need to take care of them. None of us are eating. No one is taking breaks. We're just all trying to help each other. It's not only the volume of COVID-positive patients that's taking a mental and physical toll. The transmission of the disease and the scarcity of personal protective equipment means that every day these providers show up for work, they're putting their own health at risk. We are given a gown that we were told we could use for the whole day without changing. I've now been using my N95 mask for four shifts. And honestly, if I didn't have a friend to give me an extra one that she had, I honestly don't know where I'm going to get another one. We have to be wiping off our shields with bleach wipes and storing them. I literally threw out my shield yesterday after using it four times. And I was like, at this point, I probably have COVID with reusing stuff. We're not getting tested anymore. You're just assumed positive if you have a fever or sore throat um, and they ask you to stay home. Many of my coworkers have tested positive and it's rough because every day this person is positive, this person is positive, and you can't help but wonder what is it that we're doing that is making us positive. We're trying not to come in contact with people, but we are trying to figure out what exactly is making us sick. I pray every single day that I don't get sick. I've lost very important loved ones to this and you cannot even cope because I have to go to work because if I don't go, who else is going to go? One of the foundations of medical ethics is the ancient principle, first, do no harm. But COVID-19 is forcing many medical professionals to provide care that isn't quite up to their normal standards. We have a, uh, a protocol 
now in the ER where patients uh, will come to register to be seen and we have a tent outside where they're directed and a nurse is asked to ask them four questions. Have they traveled outside the country? Do they have any allergies? Uh, What are their symptoms? And are they suicidal? And if they describe symptoms of COVID, like fever, cough, shortness of breath, As long as their oxygen saturation is above 90, they are told that we will not be testing them for COVID and we are asking them to quarantine themselves at home and come back if they become worse. Some of these people are like like at the edge of a cliff and they're at the edge. They're considered stable enough to go home, but all they have to do is take one more step and they're over the cliff. And do they get too sick too fast and die at home? Do they make it back to the hospital if they get worse? It's it's a very, very disturbing, disturbing situation. I think the most humbling thing that's happened in the last um, day or so that I've kind of been coming to terms with is that, um, I don't know if you've heard, but like anyone who has a cardiac arrest, um, basically whether inside or even outside the hospital is no longer going to get CPR in New York city. I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but, um, in New York city right now, especially like if like an EMT responds to someone who has had a cardiac arrest, they are not doing CPR. They're not bringing that patient to the hospital because it's just going to be assumed that that patient is COVID positive. And the statistics are showing that anyone who has had a cardiac arrest with COVID is like a hundred percent mortality. So like the futility of like doing CPR of doing chest compressions on these patients is you're putting so many people at risk when you do that finding out that you can't always do everything for these patients because there's just so many more waiting. You just kind of have to find that balance of like doing the most good for the most amount of patients, you know. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like modern medicine. And we have to rethink our approach to doing the best we can under the circumstances and work hard to to save lives and you know, get the job done the best we can. It's a desperate time to be a nurse, and I'm just trying my best to make sure all of my patients are safe, healthy, and that they're getting their medication, they're eating. I'm trying to comfort them as best as I can because it's not easy to stay in these rooms long, but I try my best to go in there, smile with them, let them know that I am there to help. And, you know, I don't want them to feel that because they're on this type of isolation that they are alone. When I leave work in the evening, I just feel so defeated. I feel depressed. I usually have to sit in my car and cry for a little bit only because I just feel so isolated. I can't go home to my family because most of them stay away from me. My neighbors don't even speak to me as much anymore because they see me come out in my uniform in the morning and you would think I have the plague or something. I have to tell you that the staff that works in the ER where I am is tremendous. The camaraderie and the support of each other is just, we all see what's going on. We all in it together and we just help each other in any way we can. I can't dwell on things too much right now. I'm sure in like the 
weeks and months to come, a lot of us are going to be like a little, I don't want to say PTSD, but a little like in shock of like what we've seen and like what we've been doing as providers, which is just like so far away from the norm. And I think that's going to take a long time to come to terms with, but you know, I'm doing okay right now. I still just want to be helpful. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. All the providers you just heard from would only share their stories with us if we promised that they would remain anonymous. That points to another source of huge stress for frontline caregivers, the fear of retaliation for speaking out. Many doctors and nurses are worried that both the personal protective equipment and the mortality rate from COVID aren't being fully reported. So even though you're seeing camaraderie among the frontline staff, they might also feel like the senior administration at their hospital for public relations reasons don't want them to report what the true situation is. And that can create a whole lot of stress on people. Yeah, and that goes to show how important leadership is. It's always important, but especially in a crisis like this, you want your leaders to have your back. You, you want to feel they're supporting you. I totally agree with you. It's really important that the leadership and the frontline staff feel like they're in the same boat. When they don't feel like they're in the same boat, when the front line feels like the leadership has a different agenda, that's where stress begins. And that's where you get a lot of mental health problems among providers and they're not doing their best for patients. So we wanted to talk to somebody in hospital leadership who's been thinking about physician well-being even before the crisis. I spoke to Dr. Carol Bernstein, a psychiatrist who spent her whole career in graduate medical education teaching young doctors. She works at Montefiore Medical Center, a major healthcare provider in New York City. Here's Dr. Bernstein. Well, you, you care for the caregivers, but even those who care for the caregivers need care. So I'm going to ask you this. How are things for you personally right now? Oh, please, you're going to make me cry. You're <laughs> Jeez, this is terrible. <laughs> Thank you for asking, because um, what I would say to you is that 
It's like put on your own oxygen mask first. We say this all the time. That is the message to our healthcare workers, to everybody out there on the front lines. And I'm just as guilty of not paying attention to that as everybody else. So I'm okay. I am I am physically okay. I'm not sick. I'm actually working remotely because of my advanced age, which makes me crazy because I feel guilty that I'm not there physically, but I'm doing everything I can behind to support the troops. So let's see if we can break down some of the factors that contribute to the mental health issues that healthcare professionals are experiencing right now. They're seeing a lot more cases at once. They're seeing fewer resources than they feel like they should have. They're taking on personal risks. And then you're getting different messages every day about how to treat your patients because it's a new disease and what we're learning about the disease is always changing. Are all these issues part of what you're seeing and hearing from your colleagues? Yes, I think all of those things are important. I would say fundamentally, you know, the lack of protection was first and foremost. The insufficient supplies for PPE and masks and all of that, you heard a lot about that from all of the hospitals in New York in the beginning. I mean, I think that was kind of first and foremost. People are scared. They're scared for their lives. They're scared for their families. Everything is out of their control. Okay, everything. We don't know this virus. We don't have the science to understand it. So the normal things that we do as physicians to understand using the science, having studied it, that's a big problem. Doctors, we're always trying to control things. We're always trying to prevent death. So the thing you didn't mention is that people are dying that normally the healthcare team feels they ought to be able to save. And many of them and their colleagues are dying and the relatives of their colleagues are dying. That's not what they normally see. They may see it occasionally, you know, but not with this volume and not with this rapidity and suddenness. So there's no time to process. I mean, we never take a break anyway. And especially now there's no time to take a break. I mean, it's uh, people that we have interviewed for this podcast on the front lines have said something like, it feels like a battlefield, uh, that the the way that emergency rooms look, the way that ICUs look crowded with several beds in one room, normally you'd have one person, with no families, uh, with staff stretched to the limit. It just feels like a war zone. And we can exaggerate that. I know, you know, I worked at Downstate in Kings County in the 80s and 90s. But there is a scale to this that our generation and even the previous generation have not experienced. I think you're completely right about that. And there are several reasons why that's true. First of all, the social distancing. So in any other kind of crisis, either it's a single event and it's passed or it's ongoing like a war, which this definitely is. It, I, I've never been at war. I've never wanted to be at war. But this is a war. And the way it's a war is because people are dying willy-nilly and you don't know who's going to die. That's what makes this particular virus so scary and why it makes it different from other ones that have come before. But the social distancing, we know that one of the things that is really protective for anybody, but certainly for the healthcare workers, is this sense of collective mission, connection, and being with each other. Now, the connection on the front lines is actually quite powerful, that people who are there in the trenches on the front lines feel connected to each other, and that's a powerfully good thing, but we have to stay apart. 
We can't hold each other. We can't hug each other. If someone dies, we can't even grab somebody's hand. That makes this monumentally different than other situations. You know, you're taking care of uh, and you're talking to people who work in healthcare in a, you know, not always an easy environment, but even more difficult now. Have you ever felt that it would be better for uh, someone who consulted you, someone who is working in healthcare, not to go to work because they were so uh, impaired, so upset uh, that they needed time off or that they might actually create problems for their colleagues and their patients if they went to work? I, I have to tell you, in honesty, I have not personally heard that yet. Yes, I think that people, or I have talked to people who are frightened. I've talked to a lot of people who are angry. You know, it's like, why do I have to do this? Now, as, as with everything else, you're always weighing things. You weigh your obligation to yourself and your family with your moral obligation to your patients. I do want to say something that I know is in the literature that I think is very important for people to remember, because even though I didn't do the studies, I know in my being that it's true. Altruism is protective against the development of post-traumatic stress disorder. And there is no question that the mental health virus is going to hit when the immediate crisis subsides. Now, hopefully people won't be dying then, but we are very concerned on the mental health side about the repercussions for people who are vulnerable to mental health problems, which is similar to what we see with COVID. You know, we know people are vulnerable if they have certain conditions, and that's absolutely true. But for most of us, just like most of us won't die from this disease, even the elderly, it doesn't eliminate the anxiety and the fear. And in the end, we make personal and moral decisions about how we balance these things. And when you mentioned that sometimes they feel angry, what's that anger about? I hear a lot of anger about not being prepared, about not having enough PPE, about not knowing enough to protect ourselves. I hear why didn't you prepare us? It's like sending soldiers into battle without ammunition. So I want to talk to you about an idea called moral injury. This is something that nurses started talking about a couple of decades ago, the idea that even though you're not really ashamed at anything you did, you believe you used your best judgment, you still feel a great burden that can go on you know, for a lifetime about something that you had to do that might have even shorten somebody's life. Doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals are, you know, sort of historically expected just to be stoic and power through it. Has that changed, do you think? Do you think that in the period during and, and after this pandemic that healthcare professionals will just need more attention, uh, that this will be a bigger problem perhaps than it's been in the past? Well, I think that moral injury and moral distress already exists in medicine. I mean, it's existed for quite a while now, and that's one of the things that we've focused on. What this epidemic pandemic is doing is that it's like everything on steroids. That's what it is. I mean, it's heightened all of that. Moral injury, so people understand, is really this ethical dilemma that have often been used to describe soldiers in war. You go to war and you're killing people, and that goes against everything that's morally right that we are supposed to do, and that creates a terrible, terrible dilemma. 
And we have seen already, already prior to COVID, that moral distress is hugely impacting healthcare workers because they aren't being given the resources and the tools to deliver the kind of healthcare that they feel they need to deliver. There are many, many reasons for this. I don't want to go into the blame game now, but when this piece is over, we should really, really look at all of those things that have created moral distress for our healthcare workers. And that's why they've been burned out. And that's why people are leaving medicine and nursing. And I hope that this will help us get to those things that we haven't been able to get to before so that we don't lose the next generation of doctors to disaffection. I mean, I've been saying for a number of years now, if we don't change what's going on in the system, these young doctors, they're going to say, I'm out of here. They're going to say, I don't need to do this. And I'm really worried about that. I'm hoping that the moral imperative of this crisis will help us pull together so we can together try to change what's been broken in our healthcare system. So it sounds like even before COVID, you were worried about losing doctors. What do you think that's about? What's been broken in our healthcare system that's creating this kind of moral distress that's causing us to lose doctors? Well, okay, this is my little pet peeve. I know this is well-intentioned, but I struggle around the fact that we are so metric driven. You know, I think it was Albert Einstein who said, not everything that's measurable matters and not everything that matters is measurable. And I think we've become healthcare systems that are entirely focused on the numbers and the metrics. And we're missing the humanity and the connection and the caring and the stories and all of those things that make us human because it's so hard to measure them. <laughs> you know, you can't do a checklist of that. Outcomes are clearly important. We need to focus on those. And metrics are important, but they aren't the whole thing. And we have become very, very focused on the numbers and not on the rest of what healthcare is about. If you could snap your fingers and get everything you think our healthcare providers need, what would it be? You really want to know my wish list? I would want there to be free, accessible, available, outstanding mental health resources to be available to everybody in the hospital that they could afford, that they could get to, and for which there would be no stigma. Hmm. And destigmatizing mental health problems is turning out to be so much harder than we might have thought 30, right. 40 years ago. Well, because, you know, the issues that the behavioral and emotional things that we see in mental health are part of who we are as people. And somehow people always feel no matter what, it's my fault. There's something wrong with me. I'm ashamed. Um, it's embarrassing. I shouldn't need any help. Those are the stories that we tell ourselves. But the the stigma for me has been a powerful reason about why I why I got involved in psychiatry in the first place. And my work in medical education has really been totally about trying to make the best doctors that we could ever have. And I would say that for every member of the healthcare team. And I think that's what we would all hope, but that we really want to be able to provide the best and most accessible healthcare and mental health care to every citizen of this country or the world for that matter. I mean, if you really want to get grandiose, but yes. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. So, Zeke, Carol was just telling us that we really need more mental health care through the whole society. I think that's hard to disagree with. Uh, I agree. You know, it's, it, I think we're, we've always underplayed mental health, but the idea that everyone needs mental health care, I mean, maybe that's an ideal somewhere out there, but it's a ridiculous idea from a practical standpoint. You know, there are less than 30,000, I think, psychiatrists in the country. You add in health psychologists and psychiatric social workers, and we're still in the low hundreds of thousands. We have a population of 330 million. You're not providing mental health care to that big group of people with that small number of providers. That's just not realistic in my view. So you really do need to focus your attention on people who really need care. Healthcare workers coming out of the COVID pandemic are certainly going to need attention as are many, many patients and probably many families of patients who've died or who've had a very rough experience all isolated. Zeke, what do you think about this idea of showing support for healthcare workers in a crisis by paying them a little more? On the one hand, it seems like it kind of reduces their professional status to say, oh, it's just about the money and we're going to give you combat pay. On the other hand, it is a way of recognizing what they're doing in a crisis. It is a recognition, but I think it's the wrong kind of recognition for two fundamental reasons. First, this is the kind of work that, while it wasn't at top of mind, responding to a crisis, helping out people. That's what, you know, healthcare workers signed up for. That's what I signed up for when I became a doctor. Secondly, I think, you know, we have to be honest. Healthcare workers, whether they're doctors or nurses or others, actually do very well by American society standards, by international society standards. Our doctors are the highest paid in the world in general, not every single subspecialty. Our nurses are very well paid compared to nurses in other countries, and it goes down the line. So I hate the idea, actually, of combat pay or hazard pay. I think if we want to reimburse or we want to recognize the work, probably we should actually do something much more related to the loans and the educational debt that doctors, nurses, and others have to incur to actually become professionals. I don't like the idea of combat pay. So it's true that doctors are relatively well-paid. On the other hand, I've always been struck when I've done clinical ethics rounds, and there are a dozen people in the room, how few of them are doctors. Uh, And then if you you go outside of the room, there's all kinds of people wandering around the hallways doing various jobs, you know, in the old days, carrying clipboards, but they've all got ID cards dangling from their shirts, and they're all doing a job that people expect them to do, but they're not as well-paid as the physicians are. 
Yes, it's true that there may be people in the food service or the uh, sanitation part of the hospital or the environmental parts of the hospital that aren't as well paid. And the right thing to do is raise their pay, not give them hazard pay just for this episode. It's a little too easy to say, oh, we're going to bonus you because of this episode and then go back to business as usual. What I would like to do is make a structural change in that arrangement and say, oh, you're really working hard and what we really need you to do, we're going to recognize that because you're just as vital to the clean professional operation of this institution. And we're going to recognize that with higher base pay. But, you know, once we start talking about giving people higher base pay, what about all the frontline workers who don't work in hospitals? Where do you start? Yeah, exactly. I think, where do you start? You know, is the American economic structure and the pay that we give people matched to either the risk they're taking or the importance for our lives? No, we're learning this, right? Grocery workers are paid by and large minimum wage. Uh, They're critical. Lots of people who are in the gig economy, uh, delivering food to our house, driving us around. They're also critical to making our lives normal. What we've done by having a gig economy is basically make them contractors and simply take away their fringe benefits. That's how we make those things cheap. That's not a good thing either. So I'm actually, you know, I I do think one of the positive benefits here may be we reassess who's really essential and who's really adding value to our lives uh, and compensate them more fairly for it. Listeners, a few days after I spoke to Dr. Carol Bernstein for this podcast, the New York State Nurses Association filed a lawsuit against her employer, Montefiore Medical Center, as well as the New York State Department of Health for failure to protect the health and safety of nurses who are treating patients with COVID-19. In a statement, Montefiore criticized the union's leadership for, quote, choosing to attack a system and the commitment of thousands of their colleagues who are selflessly doing all they can to fight COVID-19 and save lives. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content. Executive producers are Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, and me, Zeke Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. Special thanks to Dr. Jessica Gold. If you liked this episode, make sure you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at Making the Call Pod. Thanks for listening and stay well. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.